0: Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, we are joined by Jenny Durant, who is a USDA NIFA postdoctoral research fellow at UC Davis. She'll be here talking with us about the use of honeybee pesticides during almond bloom. We will follow that with our five minute management segment on reptiles and amphibians, what they do to your colonies and how you can protect your colonies. And we'll finish today's episode with our question and answer segment.
1: everyone. Welcome to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jenny Durant, who is a USDA NEFA postdoctoral fellow with the Department of Human Ecology with the University of California, Davis, and also with the Institute of Ecology and Evolution at the University of Oregon. Today, we're going to talk about her work with pesticides and honeybee health, and I'm really excited to speak to Dr. Durant today. Welcome, Dr. Durant. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So we normally go into every single segment with our guests, just having our guests introduce themselves. So tell us a little bit about yourself and really how you got into your work. So I got into studying
2: bees, uh, as a topic, uh, when I was interestingly living in the Philippines, I was a Fulbright scholar and I was studying rice in the rice terraces and how introducing new hybrid rices had had, um, hybrid rice varieties had had a, an effect on this community and um, this indigenous community in the Philippines and I wanted to take a break from my work and I went and stayed at kind of a bee farm on an island called Bohol uh, for about 10 days and it was in 2007 and this was when colony collapse disorder which was sort of this you know at the time mysterious um, was causing these mysterious bee losses. And it was in the news and like everyone I wanted to understand, or like many people, I wanted to understand why you know, bees were dying and disappearing. And, and so I kept trying to follow and track this um, kind of as a hobby until around 2012. And then I, um, I should say around 2011 when I then applied for a Ph.D., and uh, I started my PhD at UC Berkeley, and I decided to pursue this question as a as a social scientist for my dissertation. So, trying to understand the the policies, the economics, um, and other sort of uh, social contexts that may also be shaping um, honeybee health and um, bee declines. So one of the things I was trying to understand, I was in California, and I wanted to understand, and I also was aware that, you know, a large portion of uh, bee colonies were coming to California each year. And so it seemed like a really important uh, nexus to understand perhaps, you know, how pollinating for the almond industry might play a role in, in, in honeybee health in some way. And so I started interviewing beekeepers and almond growers and regulators and scientists and, um, but I primarily was looking at how beekeepers change their management practices to pollinate for the almond industry. And then also the sort of pesticide context for beekeepers when they were in the almond industry as well, uh, when they were, I should say, during almond bloom. And um, so that was kind of the driver that led to this research. And I'll just add that currently I am, um, as a postdoc, conducting a survey of almond growers. Um, I conducted one from 2019 to 2020 about the barriers and challenges of implementing bee-friendly practices. And um, now conducting follow-up interviews with growers who've adopted cover crops and other practices to better understand the context behind their decision-making and what's driving them to want to adopt bee-friendly practices and then in the fall, I'll be moving on to USDA to uh, keep looking at that in, uh, um, in
1: that uh, agency as well. So
2: Dr. Um, that's Durant, a bit of background.
1: I think you're like my new hero. I'm I'm a social scientist <laughs> as well, and I love doing focus groups and interviews. And I feel like we should probably chat outside of this podcast a little bit more about some of the methods that you have. I'd love to. And I, I do want to add that I just make a pitch that I think
2: more social science is necessary to help us understand these questions. Um, I'm, I have so much respect and have learned so much from all the other you know, natural science, ecological science, um, biological science happening to understand bees. But I, I do also feel that social science has an important role to play um, in understanding these dynamics as well.
0: I agree completely. It's a very complex issue that we have with bee losses. And I really feel the more people who are involved from diverse perspectives and diverse sciences and experiences would really help us get a handle on this better. So during your time as a PhD student, as a postdoc, you started developing research projects related to bee toxic pesticides and their use in almond orchard. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the research that you've done, your methods and discuss some of your key findings?
2: Yeah, so during my dissertation, I interviewed over 45 beekeepers um, who pollinate for the almond industry, most of whom are commercial beekeepers that have over 500 colonies. Um, So they're migratory, they're moving their colonies all over the United States. And, um, but for the most part, you know, um, but all of them were going to almond, uh, the almond bloom in February through March. So just to give a little context uh, for anybody who's you know who isn't aware of this, you know each February, right around Valentine's Day, about uh, the numbers are kind of um, a little bit difficult to pin down, but around eighty percent to eighty eight percent of of all colonies, uh, commercial colonies in the, um, I should say, honey producing colonies in the United States are coming to California to pollinate for the almond bloom. And so this is a massive amount of colonies. And so I interviewed these beekeepers as well as almond growers, uh, people working in the almond board, um, EPA regulators, state regulators, um, agricultural commissioners. Um, So those are the people that are in charge in each county of regulating pesticide use um, as well as as other bee researchers as well. one thing that kept coming up in my interviews with beekeepers was that they were getting hit with sublethal agrochemicals during almond bloom, uh, particularly fungicides, which would be used to control mold. You know, this is a kind of February, can be a very a, a wet time of the year when there's more rain. And so there's the danger of mold damage. They may also be using insect growth rate uh, regulators, which can be used on pests at the larval stage. And some are also complaining about agrochemicals called adjuvants, um, which are chemicals that are used to help pesticide formulations stick to the plant instead of drifting. They have other uses as well, but that's sort of their primary use. So I wanted to try and quantify these these findings or these um, experiences that beekeepers were having and kind of triangulate what they were telling me so so that I wasn't just sort of reporting on what their experiences were, but also had data to sort of um, better understand what they were talking about. Um, So in other words, I wanted to understand how many of these sublethal toxic, um, sublethally toxic agrochemicals were being applied. So to do this, I worked with um, two undergraduates to figure out which agrochemicals were commonly applied during bloom, and we assembled a list for our analysis. That was Kelly and Evan who are mentioned on the paper. And I then obtained a pesticide pesticide use reports from California's pesticide use report database. Um, So California is one of the only states that requires extensive reporting of all pesticides. And we've been tracking this since 19, they've been tracking this since 1990 at the California Department of Pesticide um, Regulation. And this data is collected by um, agricultural commissioners who require that growers uh, and pesticide applicators um, share all their pesticide use data. So when there's a pesticide applied, that information gets sent to the ag commissioners. And so we pulled these records on pesticide use from 1990 to 2016, which was the most up-to-date record at the time. And my colleague, uh, Dr. Brittany Goodrich, who is an um, extension specialist, and I then um, analyzed this data. Uh, I also want to Add that I coupled this with extensive policy analysis and interviews with county agricultural commissioners, um, which are the regulators that, as I mentioned, that um, growers report their pesticide use to. And I was trying to, and then I also interviewed EPA regulators to understand how these pesticide regulations work at the state and federal level. And lastly, we conducted an extensive literature review of chemicals that beekeepers were claiming were sublethally toxic and affecting their bees. So what we found, was that in general, during bloom, growers were actually following the pesticide label. They were not applying um, agrochemicals with what are called per, uh, bee precautionary statements, which I say labeled bee toxic chemicals. And then I uh, will sometimes, uh, just to address this now, we'll say unlabeled B toxic chemicals. And what I'm saying is they're not labeled as B toxic, even though they do have a pesticide label.
1: Yeah. So that kind of goes into my next question, you know, as far as the unlabeled and labeled. So why, you know, I guess you just said this, that every pesticide has a label, but then there's that precautionary statement or that little sign that's on the pesticide. And so why are some be toxic chemicals unlabeled quote unquote, while others are labeled?
2: So there are several reasons why some be toxic chemicals are unlabeled. Um, so first it's important to think about what kind of B toxicity we're talking about. And um, one of the main reasons, and so it's kind of important to back up a little bit and think about how pesticide regulation um, is happening. So um, Congress has mandated in FIFRA, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide and Rodenticide Act, the levels of toxicity that EPA um, requires for labeling as B toxic. Uh, so up until, and the type of tests that need to be conducted to understand this toxicity or to, to determine this toxicity, I should say. So up until 2016, the only toxicity tests that were required um, by FIFRA, and that's a little different from what EPA then requires, um, but the only test required by FIFRA was the what's called the acute contact LD50 test, uh, which is where a chemical is applied to a honeybee's body. And then um, they observe for a period of 24 to 48, up to 96 hours, um, if there is some kind of uh, moderate or acutely toxic effect on honeybees. And uh, that enough that would cause 50% mortality in the study population. So that's the LD50 test. Um, so in 20, so up until that time, it was basically, you know what dose kills 50% of the population with this topically applied um, pesticide? Then in 2016, um, EPA began requiring more extensive testing. So they began requiring the oral toxicity test where bees are fed a chemical for, um, to study the same sort of effects and also a 21 day larval test. Um, And this 21-day larval test, just to give a little bit of background there, is is because honeybees have a 21-day larval cycle, so the time from when an egg is laid to when they emerge from their cell as a young bee is is 21 days for female worker bees, and shorter for queens and longer for uh, male drones. So the problem with this is that it still doesn't capture… So while these… I should say these changes are great. but. A, this still means that we have a number of pesticides that were registered prior to 2016, where we don't have that data. And so we don't, we know we don't know the larval toxicity and we don't know the oral toxicity. And it, secondly, it doesn't capture the different types of toxicities, complex, more complex types of toxicities that bees are going to encounter inevitably um, you know, when they're in the field, when they're when they're out pollinating or being exposed to agrochemicals. Uh, so one example of this is that is tank with, tank mixing, um, where agrochemicals are mixed in pesticide tanks. So. Um, and, and growers often do this to avoid having to pass multiple times through an almond orchard, um, to give one example. Um, and instead of having to put in, you know, one chemical, do a pass through an orchard, second chemical, pass through an orchard, they'll combine it all into one and do one pass through, and it, it saves on on labor and all kinds of costs for them. But the problem is that sometimes when these chemical chemicals um, are mixed together, they go from being non-toxic separately to synergistically toxic. So um, basically, either toxic or even more toxic um, when combined. So the testing that EPA requires doesn't track this. And um, second of all, we might also see issues with larval honeybee larval development that are also hard to track um, that take time it may not appear until um, a couple weeks after bees emerge and at that point um, a beekeeper might not even be you know in the original place where they were exposed so in my case uh, in almonds um, they might have already left be on to the next thing and then start to notice some kind of developmental damage Um, maybe bees are having a hard time navigating back to the colony um, or having other issues And so those are two two main things um, that can happen. And then the third is that there are some chemicals applied in agriculture that are combined with pesticides, which I mentioned earlier, and EPA doesn't require the registration of these chemicals. Um, They're known as sort of other ingredients um, that are not, testing is not required on them. So one of them is organosilicone surfactants, which is um, a type of adjuvant that helps pesticides spread or stick to the target plant or pest, and because these chemicals don't make pesticidal claims, like they're not targeted to, you know, kill an insect, they're recognized as these other ingredients that don't require testing. Um, but this can be problematic because this means that these chemicals are applied along other sized pesticides, and we have no idea if they're toxic or not. So I just want to say it's it's important to remember that pesticides are really a cocktail of chemicals applied to a plant or insect. The active ingredients impact is tested during the labeling process, but these adjuvants do not have testing requirements so there's a lot we don't know about them as a result and they're because they're missing from the pesticide risk assessment process and i just want to add that adjuvants are, are not just something bees are exposed to you know we're all being exposed to them in our food and these effects can have been reported uh, toxic effects have been reported in humans as well as the environment so we we know very little about these chemicals and the effects on humans and the environment
0: there's certainly a lot to unpack here one of the things that i'm i'd like to rediscuss because i want to make sure that our listeners aren't confused so all pesticides are labeled. That, that's, a, that's a term that, that we all know, right? So, so as we talk about what, what you're calling unlabeled bee toxic compounds, it's a labeled product. But up until now, we're unaware if it has a, an impact specifically on bees, right? So it's labeled, but not necessarily including a bee hazard statement, because we're not sure what that hazard is. If that testing was done maybe prior to 2016. So it might be caught upon re-registration, but perhaps we don't know it at this point. So if all of that is true, then how can growers who might be very sensitive to protecting pollinators know if a particular labeled product is toxic to bees or not, if it's not, if it does not contain a bee hazard statement.
2: It's a great point and clarification, but I do want to add that even if it was labeled after 2016, we may not know because of those last three points I made if it's be toxic. So we may not know if it's synergistically toxic. We may not know if it's toxic because the of the adjuvants in it. Um, or we may not know if it causes developmental issues that would take longer than the acute toxicity, oral toxicity test or 21 day larval test. So even if it's been tested after 2016, we still may not know it's full toxicity. And your question is a great one. Uh, it's one that my experience, um, is with, um, the almond industry. So I can speak more that. That's going to be more where I'll speak to that question. Um, but it's a complex one that, you know, addresses all of that that's, um, relevant to all of agriculture um, so how growers can know if a product is betoxic from label okay so this will take some effort um, there are some good websites like the uc ipm website which has um so that's the um, insect pest management website that's created by um, the university of california system And that has information on which agrochemicals are labeled or not uh, labeled as be toxic, but do demonstrate some be toxicity. Uh, We as part of our paper also created um, an almond specific table that shows the different toxicity tiers for chemicals that are used in the almond industry And, and these are also chemicals that are commonly used by other agricultural industries as well. Um, I feel growers could also get information from extension specialists, though I'm not sure what resources are available outside of California. And another big piece is commodity groups like the Almond Board and other commodity groups can continue to work to educate growers as well. The Almond Board has done quite a bit of effort. I'm not sure how. um, I I think they're kind of the leader in commodity groups in the United States um, in doing this. And that can also make a huge difference in shaping um, growers' pesticide practices and understanding of of toxicities of different agrochemicals. And lastly, this is a complicated one, but um, I think that beekeepers and growers need to have conversations about pesticide practices, uh, difficult conversations, um, to try and understand some of um, this emerging information about how agrochemicals are affecting
1: honeybees. So you kind of touched on the next question that I was going to ask you about how growers and beekeepers can work together. Um, You know, during your research and during your discussion with all of the stakeholders, what were they doing so far? I know you've already said the uh, California Almond Board has been part of this process, but what else have growers and beekeepers done so far uh, to work together? So one of the findings
2: that um, I also wanted to add that will feed into this was that while growers were following the label, which is the title of our our, um, paper, they also were applying um, these unlabeled as be toxic agrochemicals. And so that awareness was really coming about in 2014 um, here in California in the almond industry and uh, I think provides a helpful model that I, th- I think the response can help provide a helpful model for other industries. Um, also, California is one of the has one of the most strict uh, pesticide regulation contexts, and so there are a few other things that they're that we're doing here that I think can also provide a helpful model. Um, but there, even within that, there are some gaps um, in how we need to address this. So one example is that in California we have a, what's called a notice of intent uh, system, and so. This this is where um, beekeepers are supposed to register the locations of their colonies uh, to the county agricultural commissioners and then growers um, report um, any labeled be toxic agrochemical use to the Ag Commissioners, and then the Ag Commissioners or the growers then contact beekeepers that are within a one mile radius of this pesticide application. And so what can happen there is if the beekeeper is registered, which doesn't always happen, um, then the beekeeper can then communicate directly with the grower to perhaps um, make a pitch for uh, you know, uh, applying at a certain time of day. Ideally, bee, uh, growers would be applying pesticides in the evening when beekeepers are not present. Um, or, and not just pesticides, fungicides, insect growth regulators, and these other potentially problematic agrochemicals. Uh, So one of them is to just set up systems where beekeepers and growers can communicate like this notification of intent system. And this is especially, um, this can still be challenging because bee, beekeepers can feel uncomfortable um, asking growers to alter their pesticide practices. They're really grateful to have a contract or to have a um, you know, honeybee, um, or sorry, a bee forage location site. And so, um, overcoming this challenge of beekeepers feeling uncomfortable asking to negotiate pesticide use is, is one that's gonna require some creative thinking. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. But I think having commodity boards like the almond board, like other commodity boards, you know, really also conducting strong pushes to educate their growers about the potential toxicities of these agrochemicals that are not labeled as be toxic is really important. In my interviews with growers, they've definitely um, learned a lot from the the messaging that the almond board has done. Um, So that's another, another key piece there. Then it's also a challenge. I think this is a greater challenge in some ways in situations where beekeepers are not pollinating a crop because a grower there is not so, say, invested in protecting the colony that they've, you know, hired to come and pollinate their orchard. Um, so, like when beekeepers are out making honey in the Midwest, for example, um, they're not being exposed to agrochemicals in the same way because they're not pollinating a crop, which may be hit with pesticides, but on the other hand, they have no real control of how the landowner or manager manages their land. Um, I would say less control anyway. And so, this fear about from beekeepers about complaining is a very real one. Um, that again, I think more work needs to be done here to really try and um, help beekeepers feel more safe about communicating directly to landowners, land managers, or growers about about pesticide practices, um, so that they can they can work directly and collaboratively with with them to you know to manage uh, and apply pesticides and ways that are healthy for bees.
0: So in your article, you talk about the need to shift labeling requirements. So, so how would that shift appear? What does that actually look like at the end of the day?
2: So I'm not a policymaker, so it's not my place to prescribe policy changes, but I do think, you know, as as scientists, we can give some insight about changes that might be meaningful. And also just, you know, in speaking to your audience, we are all, you know, citizens, voters, we have a role in in helping shape the, these policies as well. So one of my one of my thoughts is that if we want to understand the full toxicity of, of the chemicals that bees are exposed to in order to better protect honeybee health, then I think that we'll need to test um, the entire pesticide formulation for labeling requirements to measure the combined effects of the active ingredient and the inactive ingredients, which are these adjuvants, often these adjuvants in formulations. I think it's really important for us to think about the regulation of adjuvants. Again, I'm not one to say whether we should regulate them or not, but I do think at least understanding their toxicity is going to play a major role in helping us understand bee health I also think information about uh, synergistic toxicities. Um, I think that we could find out what types of chemicals are commonly mixed during um, almond bloom or when, um, during and sort of before and shortly after almond bloom to get a better sense of what these combinations are that that could be tested um, prior to regulation or, uh, excuse me, prior to labeling or when these uh EPA revisits the label every 15 years. And so that information could also help with this um, revised labeling process that happens for them as well. I also think what would really help us understand which pesticides are B-toxic is if county agricultural commissioners could collect emergent data on chemicals that are causing bee damage So currently the ag Com- uh, agricultural commissioners or ag commissioners' um, purpose is to is to help mitigate um, label violations and to penalize label violations. And so there, if there is no label that says, you know, this is bee toxic, then they really aren't in a position to often even conduct an investigation about whether or not, um, or to, you know, conduct an in depth investigation about whether or not, um, you know, what happened, what might have killed uh, beekeepers' bees. So this this to me is is a bit problematic because then we're not collecting emergent data about which agrochemicals are be toxic so um, what happens then is that if a beekeeper suffers from colony damage from an agricultural application, it would be helpful if an ag commissioner had a greater mandate to test those bees, I should say the inspectors at, um, with an ag commissioner, um, to test those bees and discover what chemicals may have been applied. They can send them, if they had a greater ability to send them out to a lab to see which chemicals, you know, were applied to the bees um, that, that may have caused this damage. Then that information could be tracked at the county level, which would then be sent to the California Department of Regulation, um, and then be sent to EPA, which which plays a role, um, which is helpful information for their their labeling review. Um, So I think strengthening that that sort of emergent data, um, and and I think that the almond industry is a great place to do it. They've shown a really high um, interest in protecting bee health, Um, It's where the greatest number of bees are collected. So it's kind of a great sort of lab, so to speak, where we can have an understanding of of other toxicities. And then it's also the beginning of the year for many beekeepers. So what happens in the almonds, in almonds really affects their, their colonies for the rest of the year. So if we could be gathering this data, even just at the almond industry level, I really think that would give us a lot of information that could help us protect bees, you know, the rest of the year. And, and lastly, uh, it might make sense to include more tests for chronic to- uh, chronic toxicity, synergistic toxicity, as, as I mentioned, as well. Um, so, uh, longer term testing uh, to understand some of these um, these uh, agrochemicals, how they're affecting bees developmentally and, and over longer periods of time, I think, will also help our understanding of what you know what chemicals are be toxic.
1: Well, it seems like there's a lot to be done, and I. I also feel like communication and collaboration is, is really key, right? I mean, just having yeah. everyone working together to figure out, you know, how to move forward. And so thank you so much, Dr. Durant, for all the information that you've just provided to us. Is there anything else that you'd like to add any final words of wisdom? Yes. I, I want to also, you know, empower our listeners to remember that they can play an
2: important role in this process. Um, any changes, any big changes that would need to happen in in FIFA, um, this is regulated by Congress, so we have the ability to you know write to our Congress uh, p- uh, person and Congress people and request for, uh, changes and things like adjuvant regulation, for example. And in addition, industries pay attention to the demands of their customers, and we're, I'm really seeing this a lot in the almond industry, how they're responding to demands for bee-friendly almonds. Um, in, uh, companies like Kellogg and General Mills are are um giving incentives um for bee friendly almonds as well and this is affecting production all the way down so consumer pressure can help shift the tide and how growers are raising their crops. And a lot of growers that I interview would love to be more bee-friendly, but need some help with the costs of adopting these additional practices. So if consumers are, you know, willing to pay for bee-friendly foods or applying pressure to companies that, you know, are are buying almonds or other, you know, or honey or um, things like that, um, these, these uh, demands can translate into price incentives for growers that then mean that we can have more bee-friendly crops. So, So I just want to also, you know, encourage us to play a role in in
1: helping protect bees in this way as well. Great. Thank you so much for being on our show today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right, everyone. That was Dr. Jenny Durant, the USDA NIFA postdoctoral fellow with the Department of Human Ecology at the University of California, Davis, and also with the Institute of Ecology and Evolution at the University of Oregon. Thank you for joining us today on Two Bees in a Podcast. You're listening to Two Bees in a Pod, brought to you by the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory. Welcome to our five-minute management.
0: Five-minute management.
1: Jamie, you know, when I was getting the timer ready, I just pulled my calculator up on my phone, so that's where I am right now.
0: (laughs) You can time me with that.
1: Okay. Yep. That's what I'll do. Um, okay. So today for our five minute management, we are looking, we're continuing the honeybee pests. And today we're going to be talking about reptiles and amphibians. So can you go ahead, Jamie, to give us five minutes of what kind of reptiles and amphibians we have in our apiary?
0: Yeah, I'm going to have the reverse problem with this particular five-minute management. That's having enough to talk about very long because <laughs> nice. I, I think that I'll make it. So um, let me let me just say, broadly speaking, the only reptile I've ever seen be of any reasonable problem for bees would be lizards. Uh, occasionally, they'll show up on hives and eat the bees. I don't, I don't actually see that commonly, but I know it happens. And then from the amphibian perspective, the biggest threat would be toads, Um, and I'll talk about these kind of separately. Before I do though, I will say that there is one reptile that a lot of beekeepers mention in their apiaries, but it does not pose a threat to bees, it's more of a threat to people, and almost every beekeeper who's kept bees for any length of time, has found a snake under their colony or something like that. And I was going to say almost every beekeeper, because I hear a lot of beekeepers talk about snakes, but I have personally never found one under a hive. So I'm happy that that's the case. I'm just going to remind all beekeepers in this five minute management, be careful where you put your fingers underneath the hive or when you put your feet underneath hives from a snake perspective. All right. So back to what can be a problem for bees. So There are a few lizard species, at least where I live, and I'm sure all around the world this is true, that just eat insects. That's just what they do. And so honeybee colonies provide a nearly endless source of insects for them. I have seen some lizards on my own colonies eating bees, but I just don't think it's a major threat. It's not something worth controlling, not something worth worrying about. Just be aware that they may be there. And if you really think it's a problem, you can always pick up the lizard and take it somewhere else. Basically, removal is how you're going to have to deal with that, that particular threat. Now, toads can be a much bigger problem. I've been to Australia a couple of times now and I very specifically remember a beekeeper taking me to his apiary and telling me that cane toads were a really big problem for his bees. And so cane toads are an invasive species in Australia, they come up to colonies at nighttime and they just sit there and eat bee after bee after bee after bee after bee bee from the hive entrance. So in this case, like with lizards, the only real hope that you have is removal of the toad. You have to catch them in action and you have to remove them. This particular beekeeper, I'll tell you what he did. He he put a piece of plywood down in the apiary because toads like to hide under stuff during the daytime. And every time he would go to the apiary, he'd flip up that plywood, see the toads. And I will I will say he disposed of them. Let's say <laughs> okay. it that way.
1: <laughs> I thought you were getting just no, I, of I what was he did. I was
0: very carefully just going to say disposed of them. But But in this case, removal is what is the big deal. You know, I've lived in quite a few places in my lifetime and have never really seen toads be a significant problem for my colonies, but if they are a problem for yours, you need to just simply remove them. And if they're an invasive species, eradicating them is a a guilt-free option for you as well how's
1: that? Yeah, that was, that was great. You actually have a minute and a half left. And you know, so I guess the one question I do have since we have a minute and a half and can talk about this, do these reptiles and amphibians, do they normally eat live honeybees or do they normally go after dead honeybees?
0: So Good question, Amy. They actually eat live honeybees. I see them capturing live honeybees, especially like cane toads, which then begs the question, you you, you know if you were to pick up a honeybee and grasp it with your hand, right? It's going to sting you. And I think mm-hmm. they've dissected cane toads that would have you know, dozens or more stings in their uh, digestive tract, like on the way down the bee's stinging, in their gut they're stinging, but for some reason it just doesn't seem to bother the toads and they'll just keep eating bees. I, you know, toads will often defecate. They're, they're often larger piles of poo than you would expect. And so you can see these piles around the colonies and people often think that they come from mammals and they're not really mammals. And then you can see B exoskeletons, really? that's right. You can see B <laughs> exoskeletons, it's pretty big. It's kind of impressive, but you can see B exoskeletons in these piles of feces. We have a toad that lives outside of our garage and at nighttime it comes out and eats insects that go onto the white door of our garage. And it's it's got big old piles of feces. So you can see similar things around honeybee colonies with honeybee exoskeletons in them. And you know you've got some critter coming up at nighttime eating bees.
1: Awesome. Well, there was your five-minute management and I'm sure you just learned way more about reptile feces than you ever wanted to know. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our five-minute management
0: it's everybody's favorite game show stomp the chump
1: all right it is the question and answer time so jamie the first question we have is what is the deal with the one inch holes drilled into brood or honey supers? This is, I guess the hole is usually in the center of the box. Um, and it's used as a secondary entrance. I don't know. Is that, is there a benefit or why do beekeepers even do that?
0: Yeah, Amy. So one of the things that you'll see in beekeeping is that there's just tons of modifications and then proclamations about what this modification does or doesn't do. And before you know it, a lot of beekeepers are doing it. And then you're having to wonder if it's, if it's beneficial. So, this hole that you describe is one of those things. Almost everybody that I see who does it will call it upward ventilation or an, uh, um, uh, a secondary interest, but they interest, but they oftentimes say we're trying to ventilate our hive. And so a lot of folks do it for a few different reasons. It depends on which beekeeper you ask. Some say it's increased ventilation. Some say that it just gives them a secondary entrance. so bees, you know, don't have to run all the way down to the bottom. That there be, if you look at a, a wild colony, there there may often be uh, in a in a hive that they're living in multiple entrances. So they're just trying to duplicate that. Some folks claim that it helps with honey production. Some folks claim all kinds of things. I have never seen any research projects on these holes being drilled into boxes, but in the very least, it doesn't seem to hurt colony. So I don't usually discourage it when people are talking to me about it. I usually go, so why do you use it? Oh, we think it does this, this, and this. And I'm usually just kind of nodding my head in agreement just because it's a learning opportunity for me. It's it's just one of those things that a lot of folks do that I think the the action of doing it has preceded the science of supporting its use. So that's that's usually the way that I describe upward ventilation. If you think about it, Amy, we've had a couple Mm -hmm. of podcast guests recently who've argued, you know, you can overventilate colonies. So, you know, it's just one of those things that a lot of beekeepers do. and, And almost all of them have their own, you know, unique reason for doing it.
1: Yeah. That's, that's so funny. You know, you ask like 10 beekeepers a question and you get 15 answers. Is that what they say? I don't know. I've heard that, but
0: yeah, that's, Seems like I, that's, the case. <laughs> that's, that's one of those things that a lot of folks say for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. So for the second question, and I feel like I could totally relate to this because this happened to me, I feel like when I had bees in Orlando, so this person has a colony and it's grown to a full double deep with two supers. The bees have always been pretty chill. They've always been really you know easy to work, but the bigger they get, the hotter they get. So, you know, this person opened them up the other day and they literally covered this person's veil. Um, It happened immediately when they took the screen inner cover off. So is this, I mean, I guess the question is, as colonies start to grow, does that have to do with you know whether they're chill or whether they're more defensive, or is it just because there are more bees? Or you know, what's your take on
0: this? Yeah, so here's the deal, Amy. You know, I've, I've kept bees for a long time myself, and and I know that through working with bees, I will often make these observations that just kind of stick in my mind, and I will um, uniformly apply that belief to all of my colonies. So I have heard before that colonies you know, might get more defensive the larger they get, but I suspect it has less to do with how predisposed they were to defensive behavior in the first place and more just an artifact of size, right? If you're working a small colony that is quote hot, right? One that might want to attack you more often than, than others would, you still may only get two or three bees coming after you because it's a small colony. So as it grows, there's just simply more bees available to come after you. So I would argue that that there's a genetic basis, right, for this defensive behavior, and it's probably uniformly spread over the life of that colony, and they just, quote, get hotter because they're bigger and there are more bees to respond. That, that is my general comment. Now, you could argue, too, though, that they become more defensive because they have more to defend. We use Mm, that mm -hmm. word defensive and not aggressive. Aggressive implies that they come out to get you on purpose. Defensive means they're just defending their nest. That's why swarms are quite docile. They have nothing to defend, Mm -hmm. whereas established colonies can be defensive because they have something to defend. So maybe they just have more to defend. Also, if you think about it too, Amy, colonies tend to be largest in you know the middle of the season right they they're coming off of their honey flow in june they're the strongest that they're going to be Now there's no nectar flow available for them. And we're in July, August, September, the colonies are still very large, but there's nothing for those old forager bees to do. So they tend to be around the colonies or hives when we visit. So they're the ones who would most likely be defensive anyway. So we're just exposed to more bees that are otherwise predisposed to be defensive. So it didn't have anything to do with whether or not that colony was calm at one point, but now it's defensive. It's now just those bees who are the defensive ones are around the nest when we work the hive does that does that make sense
1: that makes sense to me. I think, I hope it makes sense to our listeners. And if not, I'm sure this person will email us again to follow up.
0: <laughs> but you know, you you hear that same thing though with shade. Bees and mm-hmm. sun tend to be less defensive. Bees and shade tend to be more defensive. And, and I wonder how much of that's real versus just sure. we, we, we hold on to these anecdotes. And because we've seen it once or twice ourselves, we kind of uniformly apply it across all the colonies who work. And I just, mm-hmm. I, I think in the case of a strong colony, like I said, they tend to be strong at times of the year when the bees are otherwise back in the hive, they, they, you know, tend to have more to protect. There tend to be more of them to encounter. And I think all of those have more to do with you experiencing what you believe to Mm -hmm. be heightened defensiveness Mm -hmm. than them actually just getting grumpier.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would add to that to say that the time of day and, you know, the time of year, and there are just so many factors that go into that, I think. So all right. So for the third question, uh, this person, this is kind of a fun question. I'm excited to ask this one to you. Um, so, you know, we hear that as we use the same cell foundation, um, that bees get smaller, they start getting smaller year after year, right. Or, uh, mm-hmm. just generation after generation. So this person was asking if you if you take a honey super out and, and let's say that the cells are, you know, pulled out just a little bit deeper. Do the bees get longer? Do we get longer bees?
0: Okay. So this is an interesting question. I actually had to look up um, some potential articles on this and you might not be surprised that I found none at all. So I'm just going to kind of give you my perspective on it. So let's start from the top, small cell. What does that mean? So when I first got hired at the University of Florida uh, around 2006, there was this huge explosion of interest in small cell uh, keeping of bees. And, and, and what it means is you can buy sheets of foundation that have smaller cell sizes than the traditional sizes of cells on the foundation that we ordinarily use. So there was this huge explosion in folks using small cell foundation, which produced, you know, on which bees built smaller cells because there were all of these purported benefits. Varroa control, this control, that control, this thing, that thing. Bees on small cells do this and not that. So we actually did a research project, one of the first research projects I did here at UF and showed that Small Cell Foundation didn't influence Varroa um, populations and hives at all. And since then, two or three or four other labs have shown exactly the same thing. So there doesn't seem to be a Varroa benefit related to small cell, and we might get some emails and comments on social media about that. Um, but, But nevertheless, Some of the purported reasons for its believed efficacy at the time is that bees that are developing in small cell themselves are slightly smaller, but also develop faster, and if they develop slightly faster, there's slightly less time for varroa to mature in cells, so you get a reduced varroa reproduction rate. Again, none of which has been substantiated over over the long term in multiple studies. However bees developing in smaller diameter cells do tend to be slightly smaller. It is likely something that you would be unable to see with the naked eye. I found a couple of research projects where they were measuring the size of bees um, being produced in small cell foundation relative to standard cell foundation. And they did find that the head width was smaller, that the thoracic diameter was smaller, but I have yet to find a paper where they measured the overall length of the honeybee. So this questioner is basically saying we used small cell in honey supers, but we use nine frames in a 10 frame super. So they pulled the comb out uh, wider than they ordinarily would. So you've still got smaller diameter cells, but longer cells. So they're essentially asking, would I get smaller, you know, sized bees that are still longer Mm -hmm. than ordinary in these small cells. And I've just not found any papers where they measured the length of bees developing in shallow cells or deep cells, or even for that matter, uh, small cell versus big cell. Almost everything is head capsule width, thoracic width, things that would match the diameter cell rather than the depth of the cell. So now we're left for my grand speculation here at the end. You might or might not get longer bees in shallower or deeper cells. I think the jury's still out. My gut tells me is if there even is an impact on length, and I suspect there's not much of one, but even if there is, number one, it wouldn't be noticeable with the naked eye. You'd have to detect it in measurements. And number two, I'm not sure what benefit that would give to our bees. I will say when I did my PhD in South Africa, when I moved there and started working with those bees, it they, they sounded like flies flying around and my eyes noticeably uh, could pick out that the cells were smaller and the bees were mm-hmm. smaller. And when I came back to the States, the bees sounded deeper, they were bigger, they f- uh, flew uh, slower and all of these things. So a lot of stuff very quickly popped out to me. You can notice it, but <laughs> yeah. that's, I don't think you can notice that uh, easily just by using small cell or regular foundation here in the States. I think the sizes are are, are awfully close.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, I had asked this, I had asked this question to you last week, and I think you had mentioned something about whether a queen would even lay an egg in that cell. I mean, you know, is there, what are your thoughts on that?
0: So that's a good point. Yeah. If, if cells are extraordinarily long, a queen is almost certainly not going to go in there and lay it. I mean, you, you, and when you use nine frames and a 10 frame super, you can get cells that are probably too long for the Queens to use for laying eggs in the first place. I mean, that's a really good point. And just, just for the benefit of the listener, why would you want to use nine frames in a 10 frame super anyway? Well, in a honey super. So this is basically another question. This is bonus question. You guys, this is the fourth question. (laughs) The reason folks would do this is because when you use 10 frames in a 10 frame box, the the surface of the cell capping is usually right at the edge of the frame, making it a little difficult to uncap the cells cleanly prior to extracting. When you use nine frames in a 10 frame box and you space them out evenly, they'll make the wax, uh, the, the, the comb wider and it will be much easier to uncap both in automatic uncappers as well as the hot knives that you can use or anything like that. So a lot of folks will use nine frames in a 10 frame box just because it's easier to get to the honey. So then the questioner then is saying, well, if you use these deep combs as a brood box, will a queen lay in them and produce longer bees? And so that's that's why we went through all of that rhetoric and, and hopefully came to some semblance of an answer, I hope.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, that's actually a good point. I never even thought about having nine frames in a 10 frame box to make it easier for uncapping. So that's kind of cool. All right. So that, those are our question and answers. So keep the questions coming. Um, you know, Jamie, we're kind of at the point right now where people are listening to our podcast while they're in their apiary and we'll be talking about something in our Q and a, and they'll be doing that exact thing while they're keeping bees. So I think that's pretty cool. I'm hoping that we're helpful and, and that the podcast is providing good information. And we'd honestly love to hear your thoughts on how our podcast, how the Q and a sessions, um, and some of the programs, how this is affecting your beekeeping management. So let us know by contacting us on social media or by email. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening today. We'd like to give an extra special thank you to our podcast coordinator, Chelsea Baca, and to our audio engineer, James Weaver. Without their hard work, two bees in a podcast would not be possible.